Oncology Systems Limited are the leading provider of radiotherapy ancillary equipment in the UK and Ireland. Serving the community for over 22 years, we pride ourselves on exceptional service and quality products. Please take a moment to visit our website, www.osl.uk.com, and take a look at our product line, which include macromedics for patient immobilisation and IBA dosimetry for all your radiotherapy quality assurance needs. We are more than happy to take your questions, so please do get in touch via our website or email inquiry at osl.uk.com and one of our specialist team will be available to assist you. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 59. My name is Jay McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host named Jelka Anderson. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Mamoodal Hussan, who talked about being the CEO of Envision and the role of artificial intelligence in radiotherapy treatment planning. If you haven't yet had a chance, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Heather Nesbitt. She will be discussing her career, advanced practice and her role within Health Education England. And as a bit of a celebrity in radiotherapy, uh, thank you so much, Heather, for joining us. It's great to have you with us this evening. Thank you very much for inviting me. So um, as you've already heard, my name's Heather Nisbet and um, I have been qualified for a very, very long time as a therapeutic radiographer. So I qualified back in, I almost don't want to say this because it makes me sound so old, but um, back in 1989 um, was when I graduated. And that was in the years when we still had the diploma of the College of Radiographers. It wasn't a degree um, course at the, in those days. Um, and I have worked um, solidly in clinical practice um, for nearly all of my career. And um, I come from Northern Ireland originally. You might be able to pick up my accent, but bearing in mind, I came over to Oxford when I was 18. I'm, I'm aware that I've got hints of it that come here and there. Um, and I have, I've, I'm actually married to a, a medical physicist as well. So, you know, we like to keep it in the, um, the uh, profession. And I have got three grown-up children who have all left home now. So um, life is uh, very much more relaxed than it was, say, 10 years ago when I was trying to bring them all up and um, have a career at the same time. So I'm now working in um, Health Education England and I've been there for um, the last uh, 15, 16 months um, as the supervision and assessment lead um, for the Faculty of Advancing Practice in the Southeast region. But I've actually just been um, seconded to the Midlands region as the faculty lead for the next six months. So I'm, I'm going to be doing just a day a week um, in this current role. But I've moved out of radiotherapy altogether now and I focus across all of the professions who work in advanced practice. So all of the allied health professions, the nurses, pharmacists, healthcare scientists. So I work across the board. Um, but as a therapeutic radiographer, you know, I started back in um, London, uh, one of my first jobs, and I have probably worked in maybe not all of the departments in the country but certainly an awful lot of them which is why Joe I think you said I was well renowned I'm hoping that means that I haven't got um <laughs> I hope that's in a good way so um so yes a third a third over 30 year clinical career and um I've been working like I say very um much in radiotherapy for for all of that time what got you into therapeutic radiography to begin with well, that's a good question, actually, because I certainly wasn't something that has always been my ambition. And in fact, when I was at school, my passion was um, English literature and languages. And um, I had intended to go off and do an English literature degree, um, but I also did biology at A-level. And at that time, I remember um, thinking... I. I was quite naive and I thought that the only thing I could do with English literature was teach and at that point I didn't 
want that sort of career. And it was actually an advert in a newspaper in the Belfast Telegraph. And I was flicking through it one day and I saw this big advert for radiographers. And it was for both diagnostic and therapeutic radiographers for training posts. And um, it just leapt out at me. And I thought, that sounds really, really interesting. I want to know a little bit more about that. So I called up the number. I went along for, um, in those days, you could get work experience quite easily by just ringing up and asking if you could come along and have a look. And I spent a day in the diagnostic radiography department and I spent a day in the therapeutic radiography department. And um, I just fell in love with radiotherapy and I fell in love with everything about it. It was it just seemed to tick every box in my mind of what I wanted to do. It was working with people. It was, there was enough technology. I've always been quite technically minded as well. And, and then all of the communication side as well. And working with people who had cancer was really important to me because I'd had quite a lot of experience by that point with family members. Um, and so I applied and actually... Ironically, the, the advert was to train in Belfast, but at that point I saw that there were um, places in Oxford and decided that I wanted to leave Northern Ireland and sort of spread my wings and came to Oxford and did my training here. And as I say, I think I was so lucky to find profession that has just been the pa my passion for the rest of my life. I don't know if there's many people that stay in the same role or the same profession for basically all of their lives, but it has been my passion and I'm so glad I saw that advert in the Belfast Telegraph all those years ago. Were there any challenges, Heather, to being a therapeutic radiographer? Oh gosh, Joe! yes, <laughs> a lot of challenges. I think my first challenge is were learning how to um, cope emotionally um, with the role because um, I wanted to give so much of myself to my patients and to, um, you know, my my um, empathy barometer was going through the roof. And I think when I, as a student, I um, had to really, I struggled to understand how to, compartmentalise and how to um, work with my patients without actually giving so much of myself that I couldn't cope. Um, so that was a really, really big learning curve and I think one of the biggest challenges at this really early, early on in my career. But I had so many fabulous mentors and support. Um, in, in we had um, our practice educators, as they call them now. Um, what did they call them in those days? I can't remember now, Joe. You might. It was at clinical... Um, educators, supervisors, supervisors. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. No, it wasn't supervisors. We didn't use that term then. But um, I think it was clinical educators, um, who used to really help us to um, as students and actually come and work with us on the on the treatment machines. And then um, I think as I've gone through my career, it's been the change in technology that has been so. I mean, I started working on machines that didn't, that weren't even computerized, that were manual wedges. So you had to manually set everything on the machine and you ran into the treatment machine every, for every treatment field. So you didn't set the patient up, come out and then allow the treatment machine um, to move to different positions. You had to run in and actually change the collimator angle, change the um, wedge, move the machine to the right position. So it was incredibly physical, um, which is probably why we ate so much chocolate. I'm putting... <laughs> I mean, anybody that's on here knows that therapeutic radiographers do love a box of chocolates and do eat a lot of chocolate. Um, um, but yes, I think the change in technology, because of course now we are so advanced in um, the treatments that we um, are offering and, you know, keeping abreast of that and keeping up with that. Um, but I think as well, it's that... Um, understanding of patient side effects as well and the challenges that that has brought over the years to um, 
bring an evidence base to actually managing patient side effects to be able to understand them better and make sure that actually the advice and the support and the treatment that we give for side effects is actually um, well researched and um, is based in good evidence. So I think that's been a big challenge and something that we've had to work really hard on um, as we've pioneered that through the years. You know, the first sort of treatment review radiographers, which was my specialty in the end. That's what I went into was actually the management of treatment side effects. And um, I did my advanced practice and then went into consultant practice um, as a, a radiographer in Oxford, actually. So I went back to Oxford. I didn't stay in Oxford all that time. <laughs> I always think that's quite, you know, I did the full U-turn, so I decided to work all over the country and then come back to Oxford. So I've watched an amazing talk that you did just before the pandemic at the annual radiotherapy conference where we were all really tired. It was a long day. It was five o'clock you came jumping on the stage and said, hi everyone, I'm here to talk about sex. <laughs> Was this one of your passions for your career? I never in a million years thought that that would become one of my passions in my career, Naman. I, I became, started to become interested in um, sexual care for our patients as I was doing my um, advanced and consultant practice and treatment review. And what became very apparent was that patients were not being given the opportunity to talk about sex, um, but it was very much a an issue that they needed to, we needed to normalise, we needed to talk to patients and give them that opportunity to explore how the radiotherapy and how its side effects were actually not just affecting them um, with with the sort of uh, skin side effects or urinary side effects or bowel side effects, but actually that sexual side effects were really debilitating too. And that all started with a conversation between myself and um, one of our um, psychosexual therapist doctors who happened to have a particular interest in cancer treatment. She was she actually specialised in diabetes, but she saw a lot of parallels, particularly with um, our male patients and impotence and sort of realised that actually there was um, a lot of work that needed to be done. So that all started just with this sort of conversation and with experience, as I say, from having those conversations with patients and realising that nobody in their entire pathway had actually asked them about sex and had said, do you have any difficulties? Is there anything that you want to talk about? You know, um, some patients find it really easy to talk about and some patients really didn't want to talk about it at all but it was that normalization it was just another part of the consultation and it was another way of giving them the opportunity to just explore um, any issues that might have arisen so that all came within just normal consultations but what also then became very clear was actually we needed much much more than just a 15 20 minute consultation where sexual side effects was a small part of that and um, because obviously you know if you're dealing with um urinary side effects for example that can take up a whole consultation because that's that immediate sort of um urgency that need to have some sort of um treatment for that so that was when we then started looking at potentially there was um, a sexual care clinic that we could set up that gave patients a, um, a concentrated time to really talk through a lot of the issues. And that's when I started talking um, to, again, to our psychosexual therapy about, therapist about what sort of training we would need. Um, and of course, there's no off the shelf package there's no off-the-shelf training for that kind of um, development so um, we did some training with the Institute of Psychosexual Medicine 
and we um, spend a lot of time in um, the sexual clinics with the psychosexual doctor looking at all sorts of other things around erectile dysfunction, um, body image, um, vaginal dryness, vaginal adhesions, looking at all the different ways that um, they were managing them in normal um, uh, anatomy and then transferring that information and, and looking at how we could um, support patients who had had radiotherapy treatment um, because obviously things are very different and they can cause an awful lot more um, issues and for a partner as well there's always that anxiety that you're going to hurt them that you're going that you know that they might not feel psychologically ready um, but they're not able to have that conversation together and I've had some incredible consultations over the years where I've been having a conversation with a couple who have not been able to vocalize or verbalize what they were feeling and in the room there's a palpable moment where they just stop and turn and look at each other and say you never told me that was how you felt and sort of giving them that space and that opportunity to explore those issues was incredible so um yeah i i would talk to anybody and everybody who would listen about how important it was to be bringing sex up at every consultation right from day one so it just became part of our normal conversation that and so you know we we've done a lot I did a lot of education around that with our junior doctors with our consultants with all of our radiographers and you know it did become a, a point in um, Oxford where all of the radiographers were becoming really comfortable with talking about sex so with a pre-treatment information um, chat our radiographers would automatically mention sex and give our patients the information about the sexual care clinic and say you know there is an opportunity for you to talk more and to get some advice and support for any issues that might arise so um, yeah I think it was it, it's always been one of those things that um, I think the British aren't maybe naturally inclined to talk about, but actually being able to open up those lines of conversation, those lines of communication has been really important. So, you know, we've got people, um, I, I'm obviously not in clinical practice now, but I've, um, the legacy is that the clinic still runs. And, and I know that you've had Lauren Caulfield on here before, who's a consultant therapeutic radiographer at Oxford and who's carrying on that work. And I know that there are other radiographers now across the country who are also starting to set up clinics and um, have looked at the models that we set up and how we did it and the training that we did. Because as I say, that, that wasn't a bespoke thing. That was something we had to work out for ourselves and um, work out what sort of training we would need to do um, and to evidence that we were capable of working at that level of practice. When you passed the torch on to Lauren, um, did you pass on a key to a drawer of goodies? Oh, yes. <laughs> it was on my shelf, actually. In plain I, sight, I good. To, in plain sight, I'll have to tell you, no, it's quite a funny story, actually. I did have one time in my office, and, um, my one of my managers came in, and the um, she was in a tidy-up mode, and I actually always had a very tidy desk, I have to say, but um, above my desk on the um, shelf were a couple of cardboard boxes, slightly tatty at the sides. Um, and she said, oh, what are those cardboard boxes? I mean, can't you tidy those up? And I went, hmm, well, you can have a look inside if you want. <laughs> so she opened it to discover a whole array of vibrators, lubrication, all sorts of vacuum pumps. And she very quickly closed it again and went, I think I'll just leave that where it is. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's probably best. <laughs> Heather, that reminds me of a time at uni when I had a colleague. I said, oh, yeah, I've got highlighters in my drawer. Just go ahead. And I always remember opening the drawer and there being lots of paraphernalia around uh, femcare talks. And she was just like, what is this? <laughs> Holding up a um, yeah. rather large, um, I have to say, um, dilator. And I, I had to go through the whole then femcare talk with her. But yeah, you can't beat yeah. a drawer full yeah. of... Uh, 
conversation nope, starters. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yep. And, um, you know, we would uh, use it quite often with the students to sort of um, break the ice and give them the opportunity to see what sort of things we would be talking about with the with the patients. And um, because we it was always it's such an intimate conversation. And actually, when you are having that sort of um, psycho almost like psych- we didn't do psychosexual therapy that was we but we could assess if a patient needed psychosexual therapy but you were asking some really intimate questions so it wasn't something we could have students to sit in with and observe um so you know it was about being able to debrief afterwards and then go through about you know what your management options were and the sorts of questions that you ask and so on um so yeah they always used to help quite a lot with that kind of thing so <laughs> So Heather, how would you define advanced practice? Oh, what is advanced practice? So advanced practice is actually a level of practice. That's the first thing I would say. It's not a role. It's a level of practice. And it it's about a high level of autonomous decision making. It deals with complexity. It deals with ambiguity. And it's underpinned by a level seven um, equivalent of training and education. So usually um, an ACP master's, uh, advanced clinical practice, MSc. Um, but it it's, it does border across all of the professions. So as I said um, earlier, I work with um, all of the allied health professions, nurses, um, pharmacists and so on helping and support them developing into advanced level practice and there are four um pillars that that are encompassed by advanced practice so there's the clinical pillar which is that um higher level of clinical practice so when a radiographer or a physiotherapist or a nurse qualifies they are qualified to work at a certain level of practice advanced practice allows them to extend that scope of practice and to receive training to start doing additional clinical practice that may um, have traditionally sat within, for example, a doctor's role. Um, and it gives them the opportunity to um, to work at that higher level of practice. But clinical practice is only one of the pillars. There's obviously the other three pillars. You've got the education pillar, you've got the research pillar, and you've got the leadership pillar. And so most advanced practitioners will spend between 70 and 80 percent of their time working clinically, but the rest of that time they will spend working on those other three pillars of practice. So that might be research. So, for example, when I was a, um, an advanced and consultant practitioner, my research was all around sexual care and that would have been um the sorts of service improvement and publications and conference proceedings and things that I was doing. But an advanced practitioner who's working in head and neck cancer, for example, may want to do research around optimising treatment for head and neck cancers and, and ensuring or or optimising um, the management of treatment side effects. And then you've got the education pillar, and that can be anything from teaching undergraduates, postgraduates, um, training medical um, doctors, treating, um, teaching your your peers. It can be about supervision, supervising other advanced practitioners, um, mentoring. So the education pillar usually sort of weaves in all of the other. Um, pillars in there because you might um, educate someone around um, research for example and then the leadership again is is something that is a really important part of advanced practice because it's working at that which often I think when you're in clinical practice you don't get the opportunity to to step back and think strategically and start thinking about the bigger picture. So looking at where your practice sits in terms of other um, services within your own hospital, 
at regionally, nationally, looking at um, how what you're doing may be impacted or could impact on others as well and being able to um, be that sort of consultancy type role where you are the expert in what you do. You know exactly everything about your area of practice and so you're able to um, really support um, your patients with this higher level of practice. And advanced practice isn't just in acute hospital settings, it, it's across all healthcare settings. So you might have uh, advanced practitioners working in primary care, you might have advanced practitioners working in the community, you're a pharmacist that you see at um, at your pharmacist uh, when you go to the chemist may well be working at advanced practice so they might be an advanced practitioner and often within that clinical pillar they um, will have done like I say their ACP MSc which encompasses the advanced history taking those advanced clinical um, skills that you need um, some professions will do prescribing, but it's certainly not a deal breaker in terms of advanced practice. Some professions um, aren't actually legally able to prescribe, but they can still be advanced practitioners. Um, but prescribing can also be part of um, an advanced practitioner's role. So therapeutic radiographers, for example, can prescribe. And certainly in terms of um, treatment review, that's absolutely um, fabulous because it allows you to shorten patient pathways you're not having to you know go and um, explain and then ask a, a doctor for example to write you a prescription you are able to diagnose and assess the patient make that decision for yourself based on your um, expert level of skills that you've spent years training to hone and then actually write that prescription yourself which means that the patient is able to get their prescription at that point of care by the person who has diagnosed them and it just makes the whole th whole pathway so much smoother so yeah advanced practice is really starting to transform um, pathways of care for our patients and it's starting to transform how the the health service looks so it's about building that flexible and adaptable and um, multi-professional workforce and to make sure that they're trained to that quality assured level of practice um, so that we have that um, public and professional trust in our advanced practitioners. I definitely see that as an educator working within the higher education institute seeing how mm. therapeutic radiographers and other allied health professions that maybe weren't recognized as being advanced practitioners further on in their career and how actually that's starting to change some of the pre-registration training. So, you know, it was always the case that when we had therapeutic radiographers or diagnostic radiographers on the ACP, they really struggled. Um, and they would, they would really say, do you know what, this is a really hard course, because they didn't have the underpinning skills and knowledge. Yeah. Did, you, did, did you kind yeah. of recognise that, Heather, when you were in that sphere? Uh Absolutely. And um, I loved it. I loved that challenge. But what I also loved was that multi-professional learning, because when I did my advanced practice modules and my advanced history taking clinical skills, for example, I was working with nurses and physios. And I think we did have a pharmacist in our cohort. And um, what it what I recognised was that whilst as a therapeutic radiographer I didn't have some of the basic clinical skills and I had to learn those from scratch and the nurses were amazing at supporting us with that. My anatomy was second to none and actually compared to some of our nursing colleagues who maybe hadn't done that level of anatomy that a therapeutic radiographer had done they were struggling a little bit more with remembering their cranial nerves for example or or what that lump or bump is on a um on a bone and or how to interpret uh, an image and so we were able to support them with that so actually what was lovely about that was that blurring of those um professional boundaries and it i think what it allowed us to do was to develop a really deep appreciation of 
the other professionals that we work with within the health service because you have that opportunity to see what skills and how amazing some of these people are and what they do but equally they're looking at you and saying wow I can't believe you do that that's an incredible role so um I but I do recognize that and I think um you know I had probably a slight advantage in a sense being brought up in the old school of the diploma of the College of Radiographers because we actually had a module, Joe, you're going to love this. We had a module called Care of the Patient. And that whole module was all about, well, caring for the patient. So it was learning how to do bed baths and how to take blood pressures and um, do a temperature and, you know, all of those um basic skills that we maybe don't have time to teach our therapeutic radiography um, students anymore. Um, so it was fantastic to, for me to realise that actually I might be very old school and I might have had a really old qualification, but actually some of the stuff that I learned started coming into its own because I'd already spent time doing that. I spent two weeks on a ward, actually, as a student, loved every minute of it, um, working with our patients. So I'm bringing um, it back, Heather. But I'm I, bringing it back. <laughs> oh, yay. I'm really pleased to hear that because actually what was one of the things that I introduced in, in practice when I was um, back when I was still in clinical practice was actually um, some basic clinical skills for all of our radiographers. So teaching them how to use a sphygmometer, so to do a, a simple blood pressure and so on. And it, it enables them um, in so many other ways. It's managing the deteriorating patient. It's managing the patient who's fainted in the, the waiting room. It's recognising that actually you are more than capable of managing that patient. You don't need um, to go and find another professional to help you. You can actually do a lot of that care yourself. So it's good to hear that you're bringing that back. I think it's a really important skill. I'm glad you mentioned that as well. So I obviously work in treatment review and I've done the history taking physical assessment. Um, I had to get permission to go on it. I was only the second ever therapeutic radiographer to do it and they still weren't quite sure. Oh, wow. Where did you? Um, so in London, but um, some some oh, of the okay. nurses um, who were on it as well, they were quite surprised to see a radiographer there because to them I was a button pusher. That's what one of them did say. So I thought all you do is x-rays. So obviously, as Joe will be proud of me, I explained what therapeutic radiographers do, etc. <laughs> but I think that yeah. traditional viewpoint, so I've got an example today. Um, I work in treatment review. I'm an advanced practitioner. Um, had a patient who was unwell. No beds, obviously, anywhere at the minute. But I, with my skills, did the full assessment, gave a handover, did the diagnostic part, and the reg on one of the wards said, that's perfect. That's exactly what we're going to do. She's like, I can't believe you're a radiographer. I said, well, actually, we can do this. It is basic skills. It's not hard, really. I've done OBS and I've done a module in it. And she said, yeah, your notes were perfect, etc." So it's quite nice, but in a backhanded way, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that's about changing um, that perception as well. And I think when you're trailblazing in something and you're... Um, you know, certainly I had to, I spent two years trying to change the medicine management committee to allow us to um, be on the PGDs. And this was when we were actually um, about to get prescribing. So, you know, um, sometimes it is just about being persistent. And also, I think, so obviously I am passionate about radiotherapy and I'm passionate about therapeutic radiographers but I genuinely believe what I'm about to say I think that therapeutic radiographers can do anything they make fabulous leaders they are brilliant at research they are wonderful educators we've got a fabulous educator here on our um with joe they make brilliant clinicians and and why do i think that i think it's because we're a tiny profession i think we are very um well trained extraordinarily well trained we're the only profession that that purely know about cancer that's all we do we know everything about radiotherapy and everything about cancer and so when you start to educate 
helped other professions and they realize just how much you know and how much you can do it's it's wonderful to see that because I have a deep deep appreciation of my nursing colleagues I work with some incredible nurses I have a deep appreciation of our physios and our OTs and I I think there are some incredible human beings um, within the health service I just happen to think therapeutic radiographers are slightly superhuman in their abilities because they have this ability to um, problem solve and to think and to be able to um, critically analyze a situation and that's because that's all part of our training that's what we're we're you know we're brought up to do isn't it that's what you start off with with that in that very first year learning your spatial awareness and learning your kind of um to critically analyze and critically think about what you're doing every time you do it and never just to accept things by rote or to accept things for what they are because we have to we have to be thinking professionals and so i i do actually think that therapeutic radiographers are amazing slightly biased <laughs> clearly <laughs> never never heather oh i know <laughs> i used to do a lot of careers um events um for schools when i was a practice so i spent 10 years as a practice educator and i did 10 years of going to schools and i probably recruited so many therapeutic radiographers just because i was so passionate about what we did um, and I do have a few who I've seen right through. There's one who actually came to be my student and she said, I, I just walked away mind blown. She said, I could never have imagined myself doing any other any other career. And I mean, she's fabulous now. So it was obviously the right recruitment. I love it when we go into <laughs> schools and colleges um, and Naaman's exactly the same being a STEM ambassador. But it's when the teacher goes, how did I never know about this? And I've recruited loads of teachers. Uh, it's hilarious. And you yeah. kind of feel a bit guilty because yeah. they need teachers as well. But um, yeah, it just goes to show, doesn't yeah. it? I think when you are passionate about your profession or your career or mm. even what you're doing mm. day to day, I think that definitely shines through, doesn't it? And and that's recognised. So Heather, going back to advanced practice and your current role, can you talk <laughs> yes. to me about the Centre yes. for Advancing Practice and what that is? Yes. So the Centre for Advancing Practice, um, I think it, it was 2020 when it, the operating model was first established, but that had been in production for um, about three years before. Um, well, lot, much longer before that, but in 2017 was obviously when the multi-professional framework um, was uh, first produced, and um, that that was really the first document that's that actually defined the capabilities of advanced practice and defined what advanced practice actually meant in terms of a framework. So that was about core capabilities, really, and. Um, so in 2020, they brought together the the Centre for Advancing Practice because there was a recognition that there needed to be um, more consistency and governance around advanced practice roles um, to ensure that um, it, for that public and patient assurance that people working at that advanced level of practice were quality assured to work at that level of practice and that's really what the Centre for Advancing Practice was set up to do and um, it's got seven regional faculties so um, I'm in the southeast currently but as I said um, at the beginning I'm moving up to the Midlands as the faculty lead on secondment for about six months um, but there's um, the northeast in Yorkshire, there's northwest, southwest, the London region, the Midlands, um, and the southeast. Have I forgotten one? I think I might have done. Oh, I'll never be forgiven by my colleagues if I've forgotten one of their, um, not to give them a shout out, won't I? Uh, oh, east of England. There you go. I knew it would come back to me. <laughs> 
Katie will never forgive me. So Katie is also a therapeutic radiographer and she's the faculty lead um, at the East of England. See, she gets, she just gets a proper shout out. That's what it is, Heather. (laughs) She does, she does. And Katie and I have a lovely um, opportunity, very rarely, but it does come about where we try and have a, a radiographer catch up and um as all therapeutic radiographers when we get together we cannot stop talking um so it's always nice to to as we say just have a little moment within your tribe um, of therapeutic radiographers so there are four core functions in the center for advancing practice there's the function of program accreditation so that's where um, we take the ACPMSC programs and put them through a they have to map their program to the multi-professional framework and the standards of education and training and that quality assures that that advanced practice program meets the standard um, for the Centre for Advancing Practice. So therefore, if a trainee goes through that um, programme, we know that they are working at that level of practice and that they have done a programme that maps to the multi-professional framework and the standards of education. There is the um, recognition of education and training equivalents. So that's our e-portfolio route. Um, is one of the other core functions and that allows those people who have done a less traditional route into advanced practice to become recognised as advanced practitioners. So if they haven't done um, a programme that has been um, accredited by the centre, um, they may have done a, a legacy programme or they might be like me where I did my master's in higher professional education and then actually I then went on and did um, lots of additional modules around advancing practice, so the prescribing and the um, history taking and the um, managing radiotherapy side effects and so on and the sexual care. So, you know, probably another whole master's in itself. Um, I think I came out with a PG dip in the end, but um, someone like me hasn't done that traditional route into advanced practice. So there is this e-portfolio where you can submit your evidence and gain recognition by the Centre for Advancing Practice. And obviously the Society and College of Radiographers have their own um, accreditation um, process as well. So um, because the e-portfolio wasn't in existence when I was a consultant, I submitted my evidence to the society um, accreditation and and gained accreditation as a consultant radiographer through them so there is another route to that we also um, produce credentials so credentials are standardized units of learning where they um, are for a specialist um, part of learning so for um, for example with um, oncology we've got the non-surgical oncology credential that is in production at the moment and is being reviewed but they need to be endorsed by the Centre for Advancing Practice so they need to meet certain standards they need to be um, in a, a to meet a, a certain framework and then they um, can be adopted for delivery by um, HEIs. So there are the credentials as well. And then one of our biggest pieces of work that um, is part of the centre's function is about co-producing workforce solutions. So a lot of my conversations on a daily basis are about workforce planning about um, business planning, business plans, job plans, um, and understanding advanced practice and understanding where it fits within service delivery. So, um, because advanced practice isn't about an individual's journey, it's about a workforce need, and it's about identifying that workforce need, and then actually um, producing that um, business plan and workforce plan. Now, we know that advanced practice has not always followed that route because a lot of advanced practice roles came because there was um, an individual who recognised that there was a need for that role within a a particular practice or particular service. So um, it's about now being able to to, um, not go from that point, but to 
to start this journey from um, a much earlier stage where you're looking at your whole workforce you're looking at your service, you're looking at what your needs are within that service and therefore what workforce is going to meet those needs. You're going to look at where there might be bottlenecks, where there might be um, delays to patient treatment, where there could just be a better service for your patients um, and therefore um, creating a business plan and a business case to say that an advanced practitioner is the answer to that particular workforce need may not actually be the answer and that's something else that we're always chatting to our organizations about is that actually advanced practice might not be the answer to your problem it might be that you need an um, enhanced practitioner or that you you may need some more support workers in a particular area so it's about that whole workforce and looking at it holistically so that you can actually identify where advanced practice will fit and and how it's going to actually um, really revolutionize your um, your service pathways so would you kind of say to any maybe junior therapeutic radiographers nurses physios anyone who's listening kind of maybe look at what the gaps are or what there is that already there for advanced practice what sort of advice would you kind of recommend for people to start looking into this so obviously standardization is coming into it a yeah. bit more now isn't it so that's also really important for sure and that again is about patient safety it's about public assurance it's about that clinical governance around the roles uh, and making sure that the the level of practice that people are working at is an assured level of practice so for uh, anyone who's wanting to go into advanced practice, there are lots of different routes that someone could potentially take. The um, one route is to, um, to look out for a trainee advanced practitioner um, post and apply for that um, because that hopefully means that the workforce has been has gone through that whole workforce planning and um, there will be a job plan and everything in place but it may be that you're in a service and you as a, a practitioner are recognizing that actually there is a gap in your service that this is something that needs to be addressed and that's where you go to your service manager and you work together to look at the ways that that um, that could be addressed and it may be that adv an advanced practitioner is the answer to that problem and so together then it's about creating that business case and by doing it that way you're creating a business case where you can um, embed your supervision um, you can embed that so that it's not an afterthought it's actually really part of that whole training pathway where you can embed a job plan that can be um, written so that it allows the advanced practitioner to practice across all four pillars of practice. So they're not just working 100% clinically and not getting any opportunity to um, develop in those other four pillars of practice. And, and a training post as well to give someone that chance. Because really to become an advanced practitioner, you're looking at a minimum of three years to do an advanced practice master's part-time. Um, and so and you're working at the same time. You've done the modules, Naman, you know how much studying. I will never forget when I did mine, my OSCE was um, at the beginning of January. So Boxing Day was not a holiday for me that year. In fact, none of Christmas was. <laughs> that was um, books out and revision constantly um, in preparation for those exams. So it's a huge commitment for um, someone to go on and, and become an advanced practitioner. But um, yes, that, that buy-in from your service manager, that support, that business planning, that workforce planning is essential to actually creating um, and developing advanced practice within services. And it's really hard, isn't it, Heather? Because I think for anyone working within oncology at the moment, whatever your profession, there are staff shortages from support worker all the way up through advanced practice. And it's really challenging. I would not want to be a manager in any service at the moment where you are essentially mm -hmm. having to decide, do you upskill people 
to Mm -hmm. ensure that people have a practitioner who can support the oncologists whilst also making sure that enough patients are receiving their their treatment it's really Mm. challenging from a workforce perspective isn't it do you kind of feel that pressure from health education england and also with your kind of clinical hat on Oh, absolutely. It is a huge pressure and we recognise that for our service managers. So that's partly what the faculties are there to do is to support that thinking and to work. We've In Health Education England, we work very closely with our workforce transformation teams to um, to support our organisations um, in, in developing their workforces. Um, but we absolutely recognise that. But you know that that's part of of what we're trying to find solutions for and um you know all of the faculties across the the country are you know um producing resources and webinars and and going in and talking to organizations and working with the workforce transformation teams just to help understand how advanced practice um can actually help with that workforce transformation piece but yes it's that initial kind of and also with with um trusts as well to actually put the financial backing to these business plans and actually pass them and say yep absolutely this is what's needed within your service so there's a huge amount of pressures right across the nhs at the moment um and i i think it's something we're always very very conscious of Um, i think it helps because the other thing that in in all of our faculties um right across the uk um or sorry right across england and all these seven faculties all of the faculty leads and all of the supervision and assessment leads are clinical or were clinical. So we all come from very strong clinical backgrounds and we have a huge variety of faculty leads and SNA leads, as we call them, supervision and assessment. So obviously there's the therapeutic radiographers, big shout out, but we've got um, critical care nurses, we've got um, physios, we've got dietitians, OTs, there's a huge variety. So, um, and because we're quite a, although we all work within our own faculties, we all have a very strong communication um, network. So um, we're able to tap into that knowledge, that that huge amount of expertise that we've got across the um, the Centre for Advancing Practice in all of the different professions. So I think that makes a, a big difference as well. The fact that we're clinical. No, it sounds brilliant. Um, I know we're coming towards the end, Heather, but a quick fire question. (laughs) Where do you see advanced practice in the next five years? Well, hopefully it will be um, more embedded, that there will be secession planning and forward planning and that it will be recognised within those services that maybe haven't yet been able to fully understand how it can um, support their service transformation. Because um, I think we're quite lucky in oncology because we've got advanced practice nurses, we've got advanced practice therapeutic radiographers, um, advanced practice pharmacists in oncology. Um, we've got our fabulous healthcare scientists who have their, um, their training scheme as well. So we've already got that multi-professional um, outlook. But yeah, I think what would be great would be to see other services in the health service really understanding how um, advanced practice can support them and it becoming much more embedded within the whole sort of framework. Oh, thank you so much, Heather. <laughs> David and I literally text each other going, I want to ask Heather more questions, but we have reached our almost oh. our hour. So you never know, Heather. Um, maybe a couple more months. We'll have to do a, a episode two of Heather. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. We've really appreciated it. Um, thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jane McNamara, and Naomi Jogger Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Heather Nisbet. Uh, if you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest feature will be Ross McGee, who will be discussing his role as the new Society College of Radiographers president. 
So thank you all for listening and take care.